The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everybody, and good morning. This is Dr. Alan Fine, uh, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And we've uh, kind of started a tradition, maybe going along with uh, Thanksgiving, uh, to uh, review the pulmonary and critical care core curriculum developed by the American Thoracic Society to be published uh, over the next couple of months. And today it is my pleasure to talk to Dr. Deborah Boyer, uh, who is a pediatric pulmonologist focusing on clinical education and uh, lung transplantation in children. She is at the Boston uh, Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. And we're going to be talking about issues in uh, pediatric pulmonology. Now, obviously, we're not going to cover all of pediatric pulmonology, and I took the liberty of picking out some topics that I thought would be interesting to the general uh, readership and listenership. So, um, good morning, Deborah. Hi, good morning. So, uh, uh, the first question I wanted to discuss with you was the issue of uh, bronchoscopy uh, in in children, and you know, having uh, children who are now grown, but uh, thinking about children, and I have one grandchild. Thinking about that, I uh, it just seemed like kind of a delicate and maybe a little uh, scary uh, proposition. So I, I wanted to get Deborah's take about when and how we would contemplate bronchoscopy in children, what what would we use it for, and what are the special considerations in children? I, uh, I assume they will vary with age and illness. So, Deborah, what do you think? Oh, sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's similar to how we think about an adult with, with obviously uh, a number of differences. You know, for the most part in pediatrics, we're going to be talking about sedation and even general anesthesia for bronchoscopies, depending on the indication. So, of course, we want to make sure that it's indicated and that we're going to get something useful out of it before we subject a child to any form of even sedation or general anesthesia. I think the major reasons that we think about doing bronchoscopies in kids probably would fall into a couple of categories. One is going to be anatomic um, you know, if we're worried about aspiration and we want to look at the airway, both, you know, the upper airway often in conjunction with our uh, ENT colleagues or even, you know, the lower airway if we have other anatomic concerns. Other indications that we might use the kids with, say, chronic coughs or recurrent pneumonias looking for maybe particular infectious etiologies, often looking at airway dynamics, again, looking at, you know, airway malacia, tracheobronchial malacia, which can be obviously quite common in the younger kids. And then lastly, you know, in kids with pulmonary hemorrhage, um, it can be helpful either to follow them depending on what we think the etiology is or even to sometimes localize a source. So I think those would probably be the biggest areas. I think just to add on, for me personally as a pediatric lung transplant physician, I use bronchoscopy a lot in that population for a variety of reasons, both uh, prophylactically looking for uh, trouble and then also if there is something going on to try to look for rejection or infection. 
So I think those would be the, the major categories. I guess what I'm getting is that uh, it's similar to the way we would think about it uh, in adults. But how does uh, the indications vary by uh, age group? It seems to me it might be different in an infant uh, versus, I guess, once you get to teenage years, it certainly would be similar to what we would consider in adults. I mean, I think so. You know, more often than not, we're looking at anatomical things and airway dynamics in the younger infant as opposed to uh, the older child where, again, as you say, it'll be closer to uh, adult issues. You know, in any age, we can do lavages really with the exception of the very, very small babies. You know, we are limited in pediatrics by size, right? So our scopes are going to look teeny tiny in comparison to the giant scopes that, you know, our adult colleagues will use. And that does limit us. You know, sometimes there are very small babies that we have bronchoscopes that don't have suction, so we can't do lavages, and then we can only look, and the optics are quite poor. So it does limit us in the younger kids. And then the other area it limits, and, you know, there was some discussion in the article on um, interventional bronchoscopy. And certainly there's a lot of uh, very promising techniques now that our adult colleagues use quite frequently, but we are pushing those into the younger age group. We are pushing those into the pediatric population and, you know, with endobronchial ultrasounds and other techniques like that, you know, again, those would not be able to be used in the very small infants because we are, we are going to be limited by the size. But in the sort of school age and up child, we have been able to use biopsies and endobronchial ultrasound, you know, so in a more um, or less uh, interventional approach. Well, in our own institution, in adults, we have kind of moved over the last 10 years from mostly conscious sedation to mostly uh, general, I would say, light anesthesia using uh, an LMA, sometimes intubating patients. Is that the same trend that's taking place in, in children, or have they always been under anesthesia for bronchoscopy? I think that really varies by institution. I, you know, the culture at my institution tends to favor um, the anesthesiologist preferring, you know, more of a general approach and or heavy sedation, you know, with uh, LMAs. But many, many other institutions around the country that do pediatric bronchoscopy will do it, you know, with conscious sedation, you know, and say a bronchoscopy suite. So I, I think it really does vary, and, and there isn't one way that it's done in, in pediatrics. And again, it depends on what you're looking for. When we're looking for Malaysia and dynamics, obviously we, we don't want them under, you know, real deep anesthesia because then we really can't see what it looks like in real time. And uh, are the yields for procedures similar in uh, children, a transbronchial biopsy for sarcoidosis? Are we looking at similar or should we expect similar yields? Or do you rely um, more on clinical findings? No, I, I mean, I think for the most part, for the procedures that we do, the yields would be similar. I mean, I, you know, I do a lot of transbronchial biopsies, and really the only limitation is whether I can do it, right? So if I can use a large enough bronchoscope and, and use a larger biopsy forceps, then the yields would be as good as, say, if I'm biopsying a 21-year-old versus, a, you know, an 8-year-old. Um, the problem is with the infant, say. So an example in pediatric lung transplantation, I either have to get a colleague to help me do a rigid bronch or get an anesthesiologist that will agree to do an LMA to allow me to use larger biopsy forceps, because if I use my very small biopsy forceps, I do get very poor yield on those biopsies and, and quite often really don't get any results from it. So it, it, it depends on size to some extent, but if we can do the procedure, then the yields would be similar. 
Great. So uh, let, let me move on to another, uh, we'll call it a common procedure, and that is uh, the use of chest radiology. Do you consider the indications for chest x-ray and uh, CAT scans to be similar in children, or do you uh, kind of have a, a much higher threshold for ordering radiology? I've, it always seemed to me, and I may be an error, that pediatricians tended to rely more on physical diagnosis and history, for example, and diagnosis of pneumonia. So uh, well, give, give me your take on it. Sure. I mean, I, I think, again, it's going to vary. I think we certainly do want to think long and hard. I would assume adult practitioners do this as well, but certainly in pediatrics, um, you know, there's a, a big movement to minimize exposure to radiation. So certainly we do think long and hard before doing a, a radiographic study that involves ionizing radiation. But with that said, I think we clearly order um, x-rays and CAT scans as indicated. And, and I think the indications would be pretty similar to adults. Um, you know, as a pulmonologist, I do want an x-ray if I really am concerned that someone has a low bar infiltrate because that's going to help me figure out, is this something to worry about? Is this a congenital malformation? Is this something that requires further study down the line? Or is this something that's sort of a run-of-the-mill pneumonia that the kid is going to get once and then will we'll never have an issue with? So, you know, we, we don't get them willy-nilly, so to speak, but, but we certainly don't hesitate to get studies if we think they're going to help us. So. Uh... Uh, for example, in ordering a CAT scan in a young child, does that usually require sedation? Is that something that might uh, so that's a, limit? No, I'm sorry. So absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a big consideration um, for any study like a CAT scan or an MRI. Uh, again, with an MRI, you don't have the ionizing radiation concerns, but many of the times they can require uh, sedation. Generally, you know, uh, an average kid below the age of six or seven, uh, well, the age of six would likely require sedation, certainly for an MRI and, and possibly for a CAT scan, but every child is different, and that's really a conversation with the parents and the clinicians involved. Um, but it does, again, give us pause to um, consider whether we need the study because it's adding an additional risk. You know, anytime you give a child sedation and or anesthesia, it adds risk to the study. You know, and so we have to weigh the pros and cons. We don't want to have the child undergo a study if we're not going to get good quality images. And, and sometimes a child without sedation would not be able to sit still and, and breath hold and all of that that we would need for an appropriate study. So it's really a careful discussion. And here at my institution, we have a lot of conversations with our radiology colleagues about what's going to give us the best study and weighing the pros and cons, again, of doing sedation versus not and what, what's the appropriate study. Great. I think that's uh, quite helpful. Another area that is really under discussion in the entire uh, pulmonary community, and that is uh, severe asthma. And I, I uh, with the uh, approval of the first uh, IL-5 inhibitor, and I understand a number of others are on the way, as well as other cytokine blockers for asthma. I wondered how, first, how much of a problem do you see uh, poorly controlled asthma as in the uh, pediatric population, and uh, what options do you usually consider when uh, asthma is poorly controlled? That's a very broad term, whether it means it might mean life-threatening in some kids or poor quality of life, inability to go to school. So, well, let's paint it with some broad brushes. 
Sure. I mean, again, it's it's probably more similar than different into, you know, the consideration of severe asthma in the adult population. You know, I think our, our kids, we, we see a lot of it. I, I think it's something that fills our clinics and fills our inpatient beds, our, our children with asthma that is very difficult to control. You know, I think the, the treatments and the evaluations of these kids is, is going, again, to be more similar than I think it would be different with a couple of exceptions. Um, you know, dealing with kids and families, we have to make sure, you know, that there's a compliance issue there and that can take multiple facets, meaning is the kid compliant and or are their parents compliant and understanding of the treatment. And so, you know, often we involve a lot more social work and other community aspects to help ensure that the kids are getting the treatment that's, that they need. And often that means engaging in schools as well. So I think a lot of that environmental and, and sort of social environment is critical to what we do. With that said, some kids who get the perfect treatment and are getting it on a regular basis, you know, still have issues. And so with some age limitations, you know, we, we have things like Zolaire and, and all of the, you know, inhaled corticosteroids and such at our disposal. Um, you know, I think one thing that we don't really have at our disposal for the very severe asthmatics in pediatrics would be things like bronchial thermoplasty, because that's something that I know has become an area of interest in the adult population, but is currently not approved for the pediatric population. I think it will be at some point. Yeah, it was mentioned in the um, article, I, you know, I, kind of vaguely, but was mentioned. Uh, yeah, and I think the vagueness the, the vagueness is because right now we can't use it in pediatrics. But but I think that will change as we get more data on how it works in adults, and I think it'll start with the teenagers, and I don't know how low they'll let us go, but I think at some point we'll be able to use it in the younger population. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I'm still not sure. I still have a lot of questions about among our expanding choices for uncontrolled asthma whether that's because of compliance issues, treatment issues. People are talking now about the eosinophilic phenotype for asthma. Where, where does thermoplasty fit? Does it really work? But that, we're not going to answer that. We'll do a podcast on that at some point. So finally, I wanted to ask you about cystic fibrosis. And that's something that's of interest in the pulmonology community throughout the uh, age ages and uh, so uh, there are classic presentations in uh, infancy and childhood but in the older child maybe in the young adult or even in you know the middle-aged adult what, what would lead us to consider cystic fibrosis when should we be testing for it and what what, what do you consider the best screening tools? Sure. I mean, this is a continuously evolving field, you know, even since I've been doing this for the last, I say, 16 years, that, that things have really changed. You know, the one thing to say, to backtrack, is this will continue to evolve as now every state in the United States does a newborn screen, which isn't perfect, as we know, but I think the majority of, of people going forward will be picked up as infants, with rare exception, and then people from outside the U.S. would also not be picked up. But, you know, with that said, there are still certainly adults, as you mentioned, that have undiagnosed cystic fibrosis. And, you know, I, I think, again, it can still present classically and just have been missed, you know, with failure to thrive and recurrent infections, which obviously should should um, lead one to consider the evaluation. But I think other things in the adult population that would push me to recommend evaluation would be things like recurrent 
sort of out of the normal amounts of sinusitis, infertility, you know, in, in a man in particular, um, you know, with concerns for congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens. So, you know, with that sort of as part of an infertility workup, I would uh, consider CF evaluation. And then other things, you know, pancreatitis, recurrent episodes of pancreatitis without a clear uh, etiology for that. And then lastly, personally, I've seen a handful of teenagers and young adults diagnosed with intussusception, which, as we know, is a really a, a pediatric diagnosis. That is interesting. When, yeah, when you see it, you know, I've seen kids, uh, teenagers present with sort of really this inspissated stool as a lead point leading to intussusception, which definitely should be considered as a rare entity in an adult um, and should warrant at least an investigation. I think as for how I would do it, I mean, I think right now still the gold standard would be a sweat test. And if you have a concern for a possibility of cystic fibrosis, I would refer to a a CF center who knows how to do sweat tests. Uh, With that said, there's a lot of genetic testing out there. There's a lot we don't know about the results we get from the genetic testing, so that's why we do couple that with sweat testing, you know, to really understand the functional nature of the CFTR uh, as opposed to just knowing what the genes are, which doesn't always tell you what you're going to see phenotypically. Yeah, well, we do have an excellent CF center in you know within our institution, but we see so many adults of varying ages with moderate to severe bronchiectasis, sinusitis, recurrent infection, and what what is the threshold uh, for or or your threshold for referring them for sweat testing what we we have tended to do was to get there are various genetic panels we can draw for uh cf so what what would be your threshold Sure. What I teach my fellows, and again, these are the pediatric fellows, but I would say the same thing to an adult colleague is, you know, a sweat test is pretty darn cheap. It's certainly a lot cheaper than the genetic testing that we send. Um, And it really is the gold standard because, again, we don't always know what to do with the genetics that we get back. Um, And particularly in some of these weird presentations, you know, where they have some symptoms but not really a full-blown picture. Yeah, yeah, there's Uh, a lot of, it seems to be a lot of, uh, variable phenotypic expressions of CF. Maybe CF is not one thing. I don't think it is, but... Uh. Correct, correct. So so for that reason, I, I strongly suggest that if anybody has a concern that this could be cystic fibrosis in a patient, I would 100% recommend a sweat test. I tell my trainees it's non-invasive. I've had it done to myself. It itches a little bit. It's quick, and you get the results right away. So, you know, to me, there's really, you know, if a patient gets to me, meaning as a, you know, a tertiary, you know, care provider, then there, there's obviously some concern for something going on. I think a sweat test is a pretty easy, benign test that we can do. Okay. Well, I, I definitely learned something because uh, it's been a couple of years since I've ordered a sweat test. I'm going out. As soon as I hang up, I'm going to order order a few. There you um, go. And uh, finally, I was, uh, you know, I know you have an interest in uh, lung transplantation. I I wondered if you could give us sort of a brief overview of lung transplantation in children. How often is it done? What are the major indications and uh, some of the special considerations? Sure. Um, I think very briefly I can say that it's similar and very different from adult transplantation. I think that the the biggest difference, number one, would be in the indications. Our greatest indication at this moment is still cystic fibrosis. 
and it's going to depend on center, but, you know, it, it could often be certainly greater than 50%, and some centers even 75% of the patients will be CF patients. Now, with newborn screening and prenatal testing, that may change, and better treatment for CF, that may change over time, but that's still, at most of our centers, the most common indication. I think right below that, the, the other kinds of uh, patients that I would take care of for lung transplants would be patients with pulmonary hypertension, infants with various pulmonary vascular diseases, such as pulmonary vein stenosis. Uh, and then we see a lot of uh, infants with congenital abnormalities such as surfactant protein deficiencies, you know, that really either need a lung transplant, um, you know, right after they're born or they really don't have a chance of, of survival, particularly with the surfactant protein B uh, deficiencies. I think the last category that is growing, particularly at my center, are kids that are developing complications of bone marrow transplantation. So we're, mm. our oncology colleagues are fantastic at now saving these kids' lives but we now see a ton of children, both with bronchiolitis obliterans, so, you know, with an obstructive disease, but then a lot of children with also restrictive physiology, also due to side effects from their chemo and radiation. So in one year alone, I think there was a, a couple of years ago at my center, we did, uh, I believe we did uh, eight transplants that year in pediatrics, five of whom were children status post bone marrow transplant. So just to give you a sense of how that population is really growing. Um, um, you know, I think, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask about in transplanting an infant, how long should we expect the, the child to live? And at one point, do, do they, I assume, need retransplantation? It's a great question. So I think, you know, the current thought and what we're seeing is young infants tend to do a little bit better because their immune systems are relatively naive. Um, we see what we think is a little bit more development of tolerance and maybe a little bit less rejection in those infants than we would in an older child than an adult. So we think they do better. With that said, there are still many infants that develop severe rejection. The survival overall and the development of rejection in children in pediatrics is really paralleling adult lung transplantation. So we still both have about a 50% five-year survival with, again, half of those patients at five years having some element of chronic rejection, um, some severe, some not. So the, the numbers and the statistics are overall the same with the caveat that we think the infants seem to have it a little bit less. So we have that 50% five-year survival, but with that said, that's obviously, you know, an average, right, of all comers, and mm. I've personally taken care of patients that are 18, 20 years out from a lung transplant, and I've also performed retransplantation. So, um, Do the you know, transplanted lungs grow with the child? Yes. They do because, right, they're coming, they're coming, they have to be size matched. Aside from, you know, blood type compatible, they have to be size matched. So, you know, if you're a five-year-old, you're likely getting lungs from somebody around that age unless you're really tiny or really big, but you're still going to be getting pediatric lungs. So, yes, they will grow with you. The reasons for retransplantation would not really be lack of growth. It would be development of rejection most likely. Well, that is definitely fascinating to me. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, we could definitely do a whole whole talk on that if you wanted at some point, I'm sure. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to take you up on it. So uh, with that said, I want to thank uh, Dr. Boyer for uh, her wonderful presentation, and I hope this spurs uh, all the people listening to read the full article in this month's Annals of the American Thoracic Society. So uh, from Alan Fine, uh, the podcast editor, I want to wish you all a wonderful rest of the day, uh, wherever you are and whatever you're doing.